Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Monday. This episode is brought to you by Good Ranchers, better than organic chicken, craft beef sent right to your front door, American meat delivered. Go to goodranchers.com slash alley. Okay guys, as promised, we are going to try our best to separate fact from fiction when it comes to what is going on in Ukraine. Now, to be perfectly honest, I just want to set pretty fair expectations. We're not going to be able to sift through every single theory, every single story that we've seen circulating on social media, every photograph, every video that has been shared. A lot of these things have been debunked. We would hear a story of Ukrainian heroism and we share it because, of course, we want to show our support. It ends up not being true or the facts are distorted in some way. And it's really hard to know what to believe. And I don't have access to special knowledge or particularly special sources to be able to tell you exactly what is true in every scenario and exactly what is not. We're going to do our best today with Josh Hammer. He has been on the show before. I think, honestly, he is one of the most interesting and insightful political commentators. He is the opinion editor for Newsweek. He was on just a few weeks ago, and uh, he's got a lot of interesting things to say. We're going to learn a lot from him when it comes to the political context, but also when it comes to the historical context. I mean, he really is just a wealth of knowledge. I don't know how someone contains so much information in your head and is just able to articulate it so clearly in an easy way to understand, but he's going to do that for us. But before we get into that conversation, I do just kind of want to validate all of the different things that you may be hearing, all of the mixed messaging and the contradictory narratives that are going on, especially I would say on the right. Now on the left, there seems to be a fairly unified narrative and perspective about what's going on. Now I'm speaking as a conservative, so maybe if you're on the left, you see it differently and you see, you know, competing factions about, you know, who's right in this conflict. But really, I see mostly on the right kind of an argument. And the arguments are manifold. There are arguments about how involved the United States should be, how much the United States should care. And then there's a conversation about potential nefarious motives behind the people who are calling for war, who are acting like this is where American values live and die in the survival of this Eastern European country. There are conversations about Joe Biden's potentially corrupt dealings with Ukraine, Obama and Hillary Clinton's support of regime change in Ukraine, or I should say political change in Ukraine all the way back in 2014. There is a side of conservatism that says basically America and the European Union um, provoked Russia into making the decisions that he is making now by using Ukraine kind of as a pawn. They're not necessarily, they're not defending what Putin is doing, but they are talking about the American provocation aspect of this whole thing that it's kind of more complicated. And then, of course, you have people who dismiss that as pro-Putin propaganda, which I don't think that's necessarily a fair description, but they would disagree with kind of that theory that America really provoked this at all and would simply say, look, 
Putin is an imperialistic monster. He is an erratic, unpredictable guy who just wants power at all costs. And he is taking Ukraine because he thinks erroneously that it is his. And America really didn't do anything to provoke this. The EU didn't do anything to provoke this. This is just Putin being crazy. Now, what I would say is someone who is still trying to sift through all of these different narratives and these these messages and trying to figure out what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false. I think a lot of these things can be true at the same time. And I won't go into super detail right now because Josh is about to do that. But I think we can say unequivocally, Putin is in the wrong, that he is wrong to do what he is doing, that the loss of life is absolutely tragic, and that he is an imperialistic madman, monster, that he shouldn't be doing what he is doing. Also, American foreign policy probably did play into this to some degree. That doesn't mean that it's ultimately anyone's fault but Putin's. But I do think that we can have a conversation and ask questions about how American foreign policy has possibly exacerbated what is going on right now. We certainly have asked those questions in the past when it comes to you know, when it comes to uh, different aspects of foreign policy, certainly in the Middle East. So I'm not really sure why we can't be asking those questions now without being accused of being like a pro-Putin puppet or something like that. Like that just seems entirely unintelligent and anti-intellectual. I think you can also point out, as we will again in this conversation in detail, that sure, Ukraine is and has been for a long time a very corrupt country. Now, I am seeing some people on the right saying that because Ukraine is a corrupt country, that we shouldn't care what's going on. We shouldn't care what Russia is doing. I don't think that's a good argument. There are a lot of corrupt countries out there. We can still recognize that Russia, as a nefarious, dangerous power, not as powerful or as nefarious or I shouldn't say as nefarious, but as dangerous as China, but still like a dangerous power, we don't want them to expand. So we don't want them to get more power. It doesn't really matter whether or not Ukraine is corrupt. We still don't want a more powerful Russia, especially if they are allying with someone like China. So I know there's a lot of different conversations. And then you've got this whole theory about like bioweapons built by the United States over there in Ukraine. I have no information that validates that theory. But I think you can still ask those questions and independently say, still, even if some of those things are questions and things to explore, which I think are, the truth is always worth exploring, we can still say without a doubt that what Putin is doing is wrong. And yes, there are unfortunately some Putin apologists here in the United States. Um, I don't understand that. I, I really don't understand what's behind it. Maybe they see him as, you know, an anti, uh, you know, a mascot of anti-wokeness, which I think is like a really lame reason to support someone. And then, of course, as I will ask Josh about, there is the weird aspect that George Soros, who is behind so much devastation and destruction in the West, especially in the United States, that he is supporting Ukraine. That doesn't mean that supporting Ukraine is wrong. That's, you know, not a good argument. But I understand why people are asking that question. Let me go through just a few stories, seven stories in particular, um, that have been debunked, that started out saying this is something that happened in Ukraine and actually this didn't happen. So one of the stories is the ghost of Kiev. And so early on Friday, it was reported that a Ukrainian plane was patrolling the skies in Kiev 
And um, the press called the unnamed pilot the ghost of Kiev and claimed that he had downed uh, six Russian jets in air-to-air combat in less than two days. And that made him uh, a fighter ace and one of the, you know, uh, the fastest people to earn that title. But the problem is there's actually no evidence that the ghost of Kiev exists. So this is according to Newsweek. Neither side can confirm Russia has lost six planes in total, let alone to one man inside a single day. And a video alleged to be the ghost in combat shared by the Ukrainian armed forces is confirmed to actually be footage taken from a video game. Nevertheless, he already has his own Wikipedia page. And so that's just one massive piece of misinformation. And then there's Uh, Another video that's circulating, Russian planes are flying over Kiev, but it turns out that the video of the Russian planes flying over Kiev um, wasn't Kiev. It was actually Moscow. And then you have this other video of Zelensky, the leader of Ukraine, visiting the troops. But all of the all of the photos and videos are almost a year old. So this is not something that's happening right now, as people were saying on social media. The Luhansk p- uh, power station explosion, people were saying, oh, this is uh, Russia bombing this power station, while the video circulating actually shows a chemical plant exploding in China in 2015, fact checkers found. Then there was video footage claiming to show Ukrainian ground forces downing Russian aircraft. It's actually from a video game. Um, Russian warship, uh, there was this quote that was going around, like, Russian warship, go F yourselves. And then there was, like, leaked audio, or so we thought, uh, showing the Ukrainian border guards on Snake Island in the Black Sea communicating with a Russian warship. And they were told to surrender by the by the Russians. And that's why when when they said that, and then all of the Ukrainian guards were killed, that's what we were told. Well, actually, they're all still alive and they are unharmed back to the mainland. So like, was that even real? What's really going on? Um, And then there was another video that was shared even by official Ukrainian accounts of drone footage supposedly showing the destruction of a column of Russian vehicles um, by Ukrainian forces. But that was actually footage of a Turkish drone strike in Syria from 2020. So that's just a few of the things going on. There's a reason why on my social media, you have not seen me share really any footage or any photos. And that's not because I don't want to, because I do think that there's a lot of heroism that's going on right now in Ukraine. But that's because like, I don't, I can't even, I can't tell you what's true and what's not because even official news sources and journalists are sharing this stuff. And then they're having to go back and say, oh, actually, that wasn't true. So I don't want to be a part of sharing that disinformation. And so I don't blame everyone who has shared things because we just don't know. We want to support what we want to support. I understand there's a lot of confusion out there, though. And I'm going to try my best not to add to the confusion while even trying to kind of like validate all of the competing thoughts that you may have and answer a lot of those questions Um, with Josh today. And then at the end of this, I know this is a long episode, but I am just going to leave you with some like theological encouragement to remind you of even while all of this is going on, like what actually matters and what we have to remember. And I know it's going to encourage you. So make sure you stick around for that. Before we get into the conversation with Josh, let me tell you about our first sponsor for the day. And that of course is Good Ranchers. So one of the crazy things going on right now that maybe we've forgotten about, but of course our bank account has it, is that inflation is out of control. That means prices are up, including at the grocery store. 
guess what? You still got to feed your family. And unless you're vegan, you're probably feeding your family meat. You might as well just get your meat from Good Ranchers. They've cut their prices really affordable, which is amazing. They care about their customers. They're Americans. They're an American company. They want people to still be able to put food on their table and quality meat on their table from exclusively American farms and ranches. So that's why they have made sure that their prices stay at a place that you can afford. Plus, it makes your life easy. You go online, goodranchers.com slash Allie. You get your chicken. You get your different cuts of steak. It ships right to your front door on dry ice. You put it in the freezer. And then you've at least got one part of your meal planned for the week. Last week, my husband was out of town. And all of you who are either your single parents or you have been at home, without your spouse, you can know that's really hard. Well, Good Ranchers saved the day. I had Good Ranchers meet every single night and it was just one less thing to think about. I love Good Ranchers. And right now, today's the last day that they are doing this. They are doing $30 off for the rest of the month. So today, uh, for my 30th birthday, I just turned 30 a few days ago. So $30 off if you go to goodranchers.com slash Allie. $30 off your order at goodranchers.com slash Allie. Promo code Allie. Goodranchers.com slash Allie. Promo code Allie. Josh, thank you so much for joining us again. All right. I want you to help us separate fact from fiction, what's going on in Ukraine versus Russia. The reason why I decided to have you on is because I saw your tweet thread kind of doing that just in general terms. Um, There's a lot of information out there, probably a lot of misinformation. And I have a ton of people asking me, what is true? What is real? People are hearing a thousand different things about Ukraine, about why Russia is actually invading Ukraine, and how we should be thinking about this, not just as Americans, but as conservatives. There's skepticism about um, the messages that are coming from the mainstream media that seem to be coming from both Democrats and Republicans. Then you have George Soros tweeting out his support of Ukraine. That has obviously made a lot of conservatives back up and say, hang on, are we missing something? What's going on underneath all of this? So I know that's a lot, but just (laughs) back us up a little bit, at least from your perspective, what is really going on and why? Sure. Yeah. So a lot to unpack there, obviously. So first of all, I I don't claim any particular expertise in in being able to sift out what is fact and what is fiction from various kind of, you know, like non-verified random Twitter accounts that I I hadn't heard of until like a week or two ago. Right. It's genuinely very hard. It's very hard to sit here in our living rooms half a world away and try to figure out what is actually going on. Certainly kind of there's a ton of Russian propaganda out there. There's also a lot of Ukrainian propaganda out there. I mean, that part of the world is kind of infamous for pumping kind of propaganda and trying to get messages out there in a way that will kind of manipulate very easily duped and deceive Western audiences. Like like what? Like some of the, I know you said that you can't necessarily just distinguish every piece of propaganda from reality that's been put out there, but just some examples of what you're talking about, like what some of the maybe Ukrainian propaganda that people have been duped by. Sure. So I, I, I mean, I, I've seen any number of tweets, right, that talk about how like X, Y, Z, you know, Ukrainian made like a very, very courageous and heroic last stand against like encroaching Russian tanks, encroaching Russian soldiers. I, I, I personally suspect most of that is probably true, but I just gen, I genuinely don't know. I mean, yeah. it's 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 it's, impo- it's literally impossible to verify. So right? that's what um, you're saying is that basically we just don't know. There's so there are images coming out from Russia. There are images that have come out saying, oh, this is a Ukraine 
Ukrainian girl like yelling at a Russian soldier. Right. And it ends up, of course, that's not true. It's not the right time of year. That doesn't even look like Ukraine. There are a lot of stories of Ukrainian heroism, like you said, that I'm sure probably true or rooted in some kind of fact, but then end up not being true. Or they're actually videos from several years ago. So, yeah, there's a lot going on. So if we can't necessarily separate fact from fiction there, like, why is that? Like, why are there so many mixed messages and propaganda videos and images circulating on social media in the first place? So, I mean, Ali, do you know what it reminds me of, obviously? It kind of reminds me of the invariable kind of um, Israel-Hamas conflicts, right? Yeah. The invariable Israel yes. has I, – I, I mean, it, it's not it's not a, not a perfect analogy because there there's a much more easily kind of morally correct and morally incorrect side here. It is a little more nuanced. But there, similarly speaking, right, I mean, the Palestinians in particular are noted experts at kind of playing Western media and easily duped Western audiences like a fiddle. They, they, they trot out – all these images of their civilians who are, you know, who are being used by the government or, or, or the terrorist groups of the case may be as human shields. So we're seeing a lot of that there as well. And one kind of concrete example of actually what seems to be kind of pro-Ukrainian propaganda, actually, is there was this one image that kind of went viral. It's a, it's a very, very kind of somber image of what looks like a, a young boy and his younger sister. The girl's kind of holding a teddy bear, kind of waving, like saluting the Ukrainian tanks as they roll by. And as my, I saw my buddy Raheem Kassam pointing out, right, you know, Raheem pointed out this image was actually from like six years ago. It was from like yeah. 2016. So it, it, it is very hard to kind of sift through here. But like, let's kind of try to take it a little back and kind of go back to, to first mm -hmm. principles, so to speak here, which is what I tried to do in, in that tweet thread that you're, you're very kind to, to note. So, look, um, at the end of the day, like the fact that George Soros um, seems to be taking a side in favor of Zelensky doesn't actually mean anything at all to me. I mean, that's not exactly much of a gotcha point. I mean, to take kind of like one very concrete example, the very far left progressive chairwoman of the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, is a, is a woman named Lena Khan, who I have no doubt whatsoever, if Lena Khan really had her druthers, Ali, you and I would both be in a gulag. She <laughs> probably hates you and I. That doesn't mean that I probably don't, uh, I, I probably still agree with her about the need to kind of bust up Amazon and Google on antitrust grounds. And, and that's okay. So the fact that, that that George Soros is out there talking about the need to defend Zelensky against Putin, that just, it's simply, it, it's a non sequitur, honestly. It's, a, it, it's an illogical point. It, it just doesn't actually resonate with me. Well, but I think, okay, so I think the reason why people would bring that up is I agree with you just because, you know, a bad person makes a point doesn't necessarily mean that the point is wrong. That's absolutely true. But I think people would naturally, especially conservatives, you see someone like George Soros, who is constantly trying to undermine democracy and law and order and border policy here in the United States by the different campaigns that he funds and the organizations that he funnels money into, now stand for the sovereignty and self-determination of a country. I'm not saying that, that alone means that people shouldn't be supporting Ukraine. Of course, that's not right. the side that I'm on. I'm just saying I think that there is some justification, some validity to people looking at that and saying, huh, why? Why would someone like George Soros, who is so intent on undermining all of these values in the West, why would he be supporting that in this Eastern European country? It seems a little bit weird. And that's just one of the things that I've seen people point out to say, is there something else going on here? What's up with this? Yeah, no, totally. And I, and I don't mind people obviously asking those questions. I mean, look, I just got back from from Hungary, George Soros's home country about a week and a half ago. I mean, George Soros is public enemy number one um, for Prime Minister Orban and the current Hungarian government. And I 
certainly have no love whatsoever of George Soros, to put it mildly. I mean, with all kind of the horrific kind of district attorneys he's putting up in Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York City, these light on crime prosecutors. I mean, the man is fundamentally evil. So I don't blame anyone whatsoever for kind of making an observation that it's a little odd. I just don't think that it goes particularly far. But if we, if we can kind of go back to first principles here. Look, let's remember who Vladimir Putin is, okay? Vladimir Putin kind of grew up during the Cold War. He was working in East Berlin at the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. He was working for the KGB. He was literally a KGB operative. I mean, if you can kind of go back to like, you know, the old kind of like from Russia with love, like James Bond films, James Bond novels, Vladimir Putin is of that era. He is of kind of a Cold War mindset. And for time and time again, over the past 15, 20 years, he has continuously lamented the fall of the Soviet Union as one of the greatest tragedies, mm -hmm. you know, over the, in, in modern world history. And he makes common cause in this sentiment, obviously, with these radical, progressive, far left nut jobs out at Berkeley and other crazy college campuses who fly kind of the hammer and sickle communist flag, right. because that is what Vladimir Putin believes in his heart. He also obviously, I mean, I shouldn't need to say this to, you know, but like, it, it, just, let's just say it, the guy murders political enemies. I mean, like we saw what he did when, when he poisoned Navalny, I mean, a Russian dissident uh, who, if I recall correctly, was poisoned actually in Germany itself. Um, he is a profoundly corrupt guy. But at the same time, this is kind of the point of my tweet thread. You know, Ukraine is not like a shining bastion of liberal democracy. Yeah. At the time of the 20 at the time of the 2014 revolution in Kiev, uh, Ukraine was among kind of like the bottom five countries as far as like ranked in terms of most corruption in the world. I think it was some ranking, if I recall correctly, was actually it was the most corrupt country in the world at that time. This is the country of Hunter Biden and Prisma. I mean, this is the country, you know, that was at was at the center of President Trump's first you know, farcical impeachment. Yeah. So, I mean, can, I, can we pause? Can we pause there? Because there are people who don't necessarily follow all this quite as closely as we do or you do, especially who may not even know exactly what you're talking about when you're talking about corruption, when we go all the way back to 2014. So when you say that you Ukraine is a corrupt country, um, what are you referencing? Yeah, I mean, blatant cronyism, right, as far as kind of how government contracts are awarded. I mean, like the mafia, frankly, the Ukrainian mafia actually is a very powerful force. It has been ever since the fall of the Soviet Union, possibly going back even further than that. Um, kind of the oil companies, the energy companies have a profoundly outsized influence on how the government goes. And the other thing that I think the viewers should remember, and again, I just got, I just got back from Hungary, which is a bordering country of Ukraine about a week and a half ago. I was actually also in Poland last year, which shares a border with Ukraine. The thing that you have to remember about these former Soviet satellite states in Central and Eastern Europe is that the fall of communism was not that long ago. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm 33 years old. The Berlin Wall fell the year that I was born in 1989 here. So these countries are all kind of struggling with fairly new constitutions. Even Hungary, um, you know, their constitution, I think, was, if I recall, was written in 2011. The Ukrainian constitution was dramatically amended, if I recall, after the revolution in 2014. But as recently as 2014, in the second term of the Obama administration, there was a genuine kind of deposing of a, a, of a previously duly elected prime minister or president to kind of the imposition of a new government in Ukraine. And he was deposed because he because he refused to sign this kind of pro-European cooperative agreement. He, he decided to kind of side with Russia. This is kind of like the major issue, obviously, in post-Soviet Ukrainian politics is whether Ukraine should kind of be more under kind of the sphere of influence of Russia or more under the sphere of influence of the European Union and, and Europe in general. 
um, as it stands, Ukraine is neither in the EU nor in NATO. But ever since kind of 2014, um, and which Putin and the Russian government has always viewed as illegitimate, they have always viewed what happened there and the transfer of power as a totally illegitimate farce. Well, is it true that the United States was kind of behind that revolution because they wanted a more um, EU friendly leadership in Ukraine? Is that true? And is that part of Putin's beef or his alleged beef? It's definitely part of his alleged beef. Um, I, I don't claim any particular expertise to know the extent to which the U.S. State Department or various U.S. aligned NGOs were kind of on the ground in Kiev. It definitely would not surprise me. I mean, again, this was the, this was the Obama administration, right? I mean, during the Obama administration, the State Department and State Department aligned NGOs were trying to oust Bibi Netanyahu in Israel. I mean, we know that. I mean, like there were there were people very close to Barack Obama and Joe Biden who were trying to oust Netanyahu in Israel. So it, it definitely would not surprise me. Um, but that definitely is part of Putin's narrative for sure, right? But, it, you know, Zelensky himself, who obviously has emerged as something of kind of like a Western media icon, and like, you know, let's to give him credit here. I mean, like his line about like, I don't need to ride out, I need ammunition. That's, that, I mean, that's like Hallmark stuff. I mean, like, that's like, you know, silver screen Hollywood kind of stuff. So kudos to him. Um, and there's that's no propaganda or spin. That seems to be like just from the horse's mouth himself. So that's just awesome stuff, honestly. But when when Zelensky was running against uh, Poroshenko was the was the guy that he beat for the la in the last Ukrainian election. Poroshenko tried to kind of paint Zelensky as kind of like a pro-Putin, uh, pro-Russia shill. Hmm. Um, it was kind of like a gotcha line actually in Ukrainian politics. So, uh, you know, Zelensky. Yeah, so Zelensky himself is kind of like an interesting character. I don't think he's necessarily easily kind of um, in one camp or the other here. I think yeah. he basically just wants what is what is best for Ukraine. Yeah, that's interesting because a lot of people. I've heard say that he was actually elected because he was anti-Russia, also because he was anti-corruption, obviously his background, which I've tried. I've seen some people on the right, and we'll talk about this in a section in a second, because there's this strange faction of the right who I actually do think is defending Putin. Some people are saying, oh, no, those people on the right don't exist. Uh, no, I've seen them. Like, I've seen them on social media. I've seen them in the comments. And there are, like, this faction, I would say, is trying to say, well, Ukraine is corrupt, which we've acknowledged that's true, and have even tried to go so far as to say that, you know, Putin's actions are in alignment with American interests, so we need to be okay with it. And then they've also tried to undermine Zelensky by saying, well, he's an actor. His background is in acting. His background, you know, he was a comedian, and his political party is is named after, you know, the party and the fictional show that he starred in, which of course is true. I don't think that's a good point to try to undermine what he's doing. Um, but then I've also seen people on the other side say, well, no, he was this anti-corruption, anti-Russia valiant candidate, and that's why we need to support him. Well, neither side seems to be completely accurate in trying to make their case that we should support Ukraine. I'm not saying we shouldn't support Ukraine, but I don't know. It just seems like both sides are getting this wrong in different ways. Totally. And that's the that's the frustration. I mean, like I have sensed that frustration. I mean, look, the the dichotomy that large swaths of the mainstream media and I guess what we would, we would refer to as kind of our our right liberal friends, so to speak. I mean, the David French's of the world. I mean, like the the portrayal that we have seen time and time again from everyone from The New York Times to kind of David French's Twitter feed and whatnot, 
has been this kind of stark dichotomy between like, um, you know, um, revanchist Russian imperialism, the likes of which we haven't seen since the Cold War days on the one hand versus kind of the fate of Western liberal democracy on the other hand. I mean, you know, these same people like to say that this is the same thing as, as Hitler going into Poland in September 1939. But at the same time, the people that are saying that this is like Hitler going into Poland are also saying, oh, don't worry, we're, we're not talking about sending in armed forces. Well, pick one. I mean, you can't have it both ways. I mean, if this is literally the same thing as Hitler going into Poland, then yeah, you're Right. We rather we really should be kind of rallying up the Western countries to send in the military battalions to push back against that. So they're being very logical, inconsistent, even even on their own terms there. At the end of the day, Ukraine is not like a first order kind of stalwart American ally, the likes of which kind of like Poland, for example, has become in, right. in post-Cold War era. Um, it, it, it's, it's just it's just not that it, it's just not that way. Right. But. Our closest allies in the region, Poland's a good example there, but a lot of our other countries in the region, um, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, the countries that are that were those also like formerly kind of Soviet satellite states, they strongly would prefer that Ukraine stay out of Putin's sphere of influence. Um, as Belarus, for example, which is, you know, is on Poland's eastern border and Ukraine's northern border, Belarus is under the dictatorship of Lukashenko, it is technically a quote-unquote independent country, but it's really independent in name only. It is a pure kind of Russian puppet state. It looks like now the Belarusians are going to send are going to help Putin send in troops into Kiev. So, uh, for understandable historical reasons, our closest allies in the region, kind of like the Poles, do not want Ukraine to become the next Belarus. Right. So, I think that does militate in favor of uh, of U.S. support for Ukraine. Again, the question is how we do so and what what the means of doing so are. And do you think the strategy that has been taken so far by this administration has been effective? Yes, there have been sanctions, but. Obviously, the glaring carve out has been the uh, energy industry in Russia. They can still sell oil anywhere in the world, basically. And so to me, it seems like the increase in price in oil is actually kind of paying for their invasion, paying for the war. I'm, to me, in my opinion, it doesn't seem like the sanctions are um, really that effective, but I won't pretend to know what the best strategy is. What's your opinion? So sanctions to this day are still debated, right, among yeah. like international international relations types, foreign policy types. No one really actually knows to this day precisely how effective they are. It did seem during the Trump administration when Trump kind of had the maximum pressure campaign on the Iranian regime, when they were basically sanctioning the crap out of the Iranian central bank and all of kind of the oil assets there. It really did cripple the Iranian economy quite badly, um, and it did seem like Iran was in a very weak position, ready to come to the negotiating table with respect to the nuclear program. Obviously, you know, this administration has kind of lost all that and flipped it on its head. So there is at least some kind of evidence that sanctions do work for Russia in particular, which, you know, much like Ukraine is still kind of a largely oligarchic state, is dominated again by kind of um, oil and natural gas interests. These fabulously, extraordinarily wealthy billionaires. Um, they, you know, once you kind of get sanctions that hit the oligarchs bottom line, and we've seen that with, with the swift sanctions, we've seen that with, with terms of some specific targeting of, of Russian aligned banks. Um, right before right before we came on the air, Ali, I, I actually saw that even Switzerland, which is kind of like the most famously neutral country right. in all of Europe, 
apparently Switzerland is starting to kind of um, sanction various kind of Russian banking and oil assets. So once the oligarchs in, in, in Putin's inner orbit start to get hit, once they can no longer go to their nice Mediterranean vacations in Greece or Italy or the south of France or anything like that, they can't enjoy their nice Bordeaux and Nice. That's when I think the pressure is going to start to ratchet up on Putin a little bit here. And, and, you know, he'll be faced with kind of a stark choice at that point, right? He can basically try to get a quick ceasefire agreement, kind of like declare victory and get the heck out of there. Or he can double down and just start ransacking cities and massacring civilians. I, I, I do not think he would choose the latter, but he's a bit of a madman. So it's very difficult to know. It, it, it's kind of hard to know exactly what his end game is at this precise moment. But... I do predict this will be over within the next week, week and a half. I think there'll probably be some sort of new ceasefire agreement would be my best prediction. Do you think that Biden's energy policy has in any way enabled and exacerbated this to a degree? Obviously, it's not the driving force behind it, but he has made decisions that have made us dependent on Russian oil from the very beginning of his presidency, obviously stopping federal sales of oil, shutting down Keystone Pipeline XL. And he could, I mean, he could turn on the spigot tomorrow and he has chosen not to do that, I guess, in the name of climate change. What effect do you think that that has had? Yes, yeah, so we, we, we have a really nice op-ed actually at Newsweek today. We're on the opinion editor. We have a nice op-ed from Bobby Jindal, the former governor of Louisiana, on, on this precise topic. So I would encourage your viewers and listeners to go check it out. But your point is absolutely sound, of course. I mean, look, I, I think it was literally on the first day of his presidency that Joe Biden canceled the Keystone XL pipeline, right? I mean, yeah. he, he couldn't even wait. He couldn't even wait until day two to do that, if I recall. And at the same time, of course, last July, Joe Biden teamed up with Angela Merkel, who at the time was still the leader of Germany, to kind of, you know, bestow a blessing upon the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is this 764-mile pipeline underneath the Baltic Sea connecting Russia to Germany. And what that does is that allows Russia to basically become the mother's milk off of which the European continent can feed. And we've seen the tragic ramifications of that play out literally just over the past seven months. I mean, it seemed like the weeks building up to kind of Putin's ultimate decision to invade Ukraine, you know, I, every news cycle was like, when's he going to do it? When's he going to do it? I mean, this it, it, kind of dragged on forever, right? And Germany was waffling all along. Germany could not figure out which side it was on because you know what? I mean, this it's January, it's February, it's cold. It's cold in Germany. And the Germans in Berlin and Hamburg and Stuttgart or whatever, they need their homes furnished and they need like kind of their energy on. And where are they getting that energy from? Well, they're getting it from Russia. So energy is kind of in, inherently a, a tool of international relations and a tool of diplomacy. For the modern state of Russia, um, you know, Russia during the Soviet days, um, obviously, was it was a command and control style, fundamentally authoritarian economy. It was not exactly um, prolific in a lot of ways, but they still managed to succeed in certain industries in the in the post Berlin Wall, post Soviet era, the Russian economy. It's basically a petro state, honestly. I mean, it is basically kind of like a Saudi or Gulf style petro state that is almost entirely reliant upon energy. They, they have a few other industries. Russian steel um, is still like a, a decent sized factor on, on, on the global stage. But it is fundamentally an energy economy. Yeah. And the way to combat Russia and the way to, to, to deter Putin's hegemony has always been 
through the means of getting American liquefied natural gas and oil exports out there. So, yes, getting the Keystone Pipeline back in order, getting drilling back on U.S. oil and gas lands, getting those permits back on, basically fracking once again in Western lands we have kind of ceased doing. And finally, yes, getting stopping this freaking Nord Stream 2 pipeline and working with Germany to kind of put a halt on that once and for all. That would be the most effective way of pushing back against Putin, I would say, even more so than kind of hard military assets, honestly. And Ted Cruz and Republicans in the Senate, I think it was back in January, tried to sanction the Nord Stream pipeline. And their version was independent of whether or not Russia actually invaded Ukraine, they wanted the sanctions. Whereas the Democrats version of the sanctions said, well, if uh, if Democrat or if uh, Russia invades Ukraine, then we'll do the sanctions. And it was actually, I'm pretty sure Joe Biden, who was calling out the Democrat senators to said, hey, hey, make sure that you um, that you guys don't go with Ted Cruz's with the Republicans version of these sanctions. So he actually fought against the sanctions for the Nord Stream pipeline. Is that correct? Just a couple months ago or last month. Yeah, no, I think that's correct. I look, someone owes Ted Cruz a huge, a huge apology. OK, that's I mean, I mean, I mean Ted <laughs> No, it's 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 never going to happen because and and Ted knows it will never happen because Ted is Ted and he blazes his own trail as he always has. But uh, so, so someone in theory owes him a huge apology. Um, you know, Ali, look, I was in I, I was in Poland last year, um, last May. I actually got to interview the prime minister Mateusz Morawiecki in Warsaw, and he was a fairly he kind of uh, how, how should I say this. He kind of hedged a little bit more than I thought because he knew that I was a sympathetic interviewer. He's a conservative guy, but he hedged a little more. I would say the one area where he hedged the least and he kind of like really put it out there in very forceful terms was on Nord Stream 2. He was adamant about the fact that the Biden administration totally screwed Poland and totally screwed our Central and Eastern European allies when it comes to Nord Stream 2 pipeline. It was was a total capitulation to, to Russia. It was a total capitulation to Germany. And frankly, from a geopolitical level, what's going on here is, you know, Trump, who kind of, you know, I think naturally kind of like the nationalist populist movement, which is kind of pro-Brexit, it was kind of Euroskeptical, was skeptical of the entire European Union enterprise. He naturally kind of found his allies there and kind of those, those more conservative former Soviet states in Central and Eastern Europe. But what's going on at a geopolitical level is then Biden gets into office and he loves the European Union because he loves globalism. He loves transnationalism. So, right, he loves Brussels. He loves Berlin. He hates those kind of nasty, icky countries in like Poland and Hungary, for example. Right. So that's what's going on here at kind of a macro level. And I really felt that when I was interviewing Prime Minister Morawiecki in Warsaw last May. And I, I, it's, it's been nice to see the Germans kind of sort of go back. It seemed like they're now they're finally trying to kind of slowly kind of ease out of the Nord Stream 2 mess that they have gotten themselves into. They're starting to pump more money back into their military. By the way, Trump was totally right on that, too, by the way, right, about how the, about how our NATO allies in Europe have to bulk up their, their military commitments. He was totally prescient and correct on that that's one. That's the, the video that's kind of circulating on Twitter where Trump is saying, look, it's not fair that you are asking us to pay this money to defend you against Russia, but you are paying Russia billions of dollars for your oil. It just doesn't make sense. That's the video you're kind of referring to, correct? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, uh, it, is de- it is hypocritical beyond words for Germany to be so reliant upon Russian energy and so reliant upon America for its kind of security military umbrella. I mean, pick one. I mean, like, you you, you literally cannot have it both ways, right? It, it is it is talking on both sides of your mouth. It is, it is blatant duplicity. So, uh, I, and look, kind of the other thing that's going on here, which I kind of mentioned in my tweet thread, too, is that 
I think kind of in the American conscience for for numerous reasons, Europe kind of plays an outsized role, right? I mean, I think like wealthy Americans like to vacation in Europe. They like to go to like the south of France and Spain and Italy and Greece and all that stuff, right? Um, obviously, as recently as kind of World War II and the Cold War, Europe was kind of ground zero for kind of American foreign policy and international relations. But what's going on here at a kind of a, a, a higher level is that the European theater is simply not going to be as relevant for American foreign policy and really geopolitics in general, I would say, over the next century than I think the Far East is. Um, we are kind of in the we are kind of in the midst of kind of an epic kind of shift of power from Europe to the Far East, with China obviously being kind of ground zero of that. And, you know, it's kind of like a low hanging fruit point to say that I think is nonetheless correct, which is why I said it in that tweet thread you mentioned. A lot of this ultimately does end up being a distraction from the real threat, which is China, hmm, China, China, right. China. I mean, when, I mean, like when I was in Budapest a week and a half ago, a local Hungarian media person said to me, you know, from an American perspective, what are your top five foreign policy concerns? Well, I said, number one is China. Number two is China. Number three is China. I mean, you get the point here. Yeah. And it's tr- it, it's true that Xi Jinping is kind of licking his chops, looking out of Taiwan as we kind of, you know, twiddle our thumbs in Ukraine. But at the same time. If we were to kind of send like a few kind of like perfunctory boots on the ground there and just like lose Ukraine anyway, that would only embolden Xi anymore. So the point is, we we have to pick our battles at this point. We are yeah. no, we are kind of past the unipolar moment. We are no longer the world world's sole and exclusive superpower, and that time and energy is much better spent, I think, overall in the grand scheme of things, deterring China than deterring kind of the 11th or 12th biggest economy in the world, a, a borderline failed petro state like Russia is. Well, I'm wondering how this whole thing between Russia and Ukraine actually benefits China, because we've already seen for a while before this this conflict, the kind of alliance forming between Russia and China. And there are all kinds of complicated conversations going on on Twitter about the U.S. dollar and the end of reliance on the U.S. dollar that has something to do with China's currency and Russia and all of that. And we don't have to get into the weeds on that. The point I think that people are making is that, look, you're seeing an alliance form that could very well become the world's superpower in a variety of ways. How do you think this conflict possibly plays into China's plans? So, look, I mean, right now, kind of the I think the fact that Russia has not been able to kind of capture Kiev as quickly as Putin and his Politburo, his oligarchs probably thought possible, probably bolsters Taiwan. I mean, I mean, if I were if, if, if I were Taiwan, I would look at that and I would feel overall a little better. The Taiwanese, the, the Taiwanese military is no joke um, to, to the extent that I'm that I'm aware of kind of like the, the specific assets they have um, higher order. Um, high intensity assets than the Ukrainian military does. Um, you know, the Chinese military is very much on the rise, but the Russian military, you know, going back to the Cold War days, has a, has a lot of kind of institutional knowledge and a lot of um, a, lot, a lot of hard assets that have still survived. So, the slowness with which Putin has been able to actually kind of take over Ukraine and Kiev in particular, I think, should give the Taiwanese people some hope. At the same time here, um, you know, I mean, it's hard for Xi Jinping, I think, not to look at the very slow, you know, plodding along way with which the U.S. and Western Europe has kind of tried to push back against Putin. And he must obviously be be pretty happy about that. And China and Russia, as, as you just noted, over the past couple of years have started to kind of openly talk about kind of the formation of a new world order. 
they're at this point basically open, openly allying in Iran. They're both kind of friends of the Iranian regime. Um, they, I think they're probably coordinating in Syria with Bashar al-Assad to an extent as well. It, the kind of interesting thing, I think, for American international relations, it kind of towards the end of the Cold War, um, you know, President Nixon was actually quite adept at this, believe it or not. President Nixon was actually, he understood that Russia and China, they are such big countries and they share a massive border there that to the extent that the United States can actually p- try to play them against one another to, to any extent possible, whether it's on economic interests, diplomatic interests, kind of mutually aligned international interests, I mean, whatever, to the extent that we can kind of get them to be anything less than buddies, basically, that's a good thing. And I, I, I really worry that, that, we, that we have forgotten that lesson here and we are kind of witnessing the emergence of kind of this great Eurasian continent power. Yeah. Um, the, Chinese, the Chinese economy is so much more powerful than the Russian economy at this point and the military is very much on the rise. But we should not want Russia and China to get super, super, super cozy. If we can, at a bare minimum, find a new way to try to kind of play them against one another, try to find some kind of micro issues that would be a wedge to separate them, that is what I would encourage our diplomatic forces to try to do. Quick break from that fascinating conversation to tell you about our second sponsor for the day, and that is Patriot Mobile. So if you want to support a business that supports you, supports the values that you believe in, is not going to take your money and give it to organizations that are actually fighting against the freedoms and the values that you hold dear, then Patriot Mobile is a great option for you for your cell phone coverage. It's America's only, it's America's only Christian conservative cell phone provider. And they want to offer you broad nationwide uh, nationwide coverage. They use the same towers as the major carriers. So you get the same great nationwide coverage, plus the peace of mind that your money is supporting the right to free speech. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget and their 100% U.S.-based customer support team provides exceptional customer support. They share your values, support the organizations, fighting for them. Plus, they've got an amazing discount for veterans and first responders. And also, if you use my code Allie, patriotmobile.com slash Allie, you get free activation. So go to patriotmobile.com slash Allie or call 972-PATRIOT. Make sure you use my code Allie. That's patriotmobile.com slash Allie, patriotmobile.com slash Allie. I don't know how optimistic I am about our foreign policy experts and elites in the administration doing that. They don't seem to kind of have the same intuition that we think would be obvious. I mean, we've seen that in several different ways, but especially in this conflict. And I'm curious what, well, there's a couple questions I want to ask. I'm trying to decide which direction I want to go if I want to back up really quickly, then move forward. I think I'll do that. So let me back up really quickly to something that kind of seems irrelevant, but it'll circle back to what we're talking about right now. And that is you mentioned Burisma and you mentioned Joe Biden. A lot of people, whether it's legitimate or not, are saying that maybe there's some nefarious reasons here why Joe Biden and his administration are so adamant about defending what seems like to some people almost a random Eastern European country, which I think you've already explained. It's definitely not 
random. Like there are certainly strategic reasons to protecting it. But they talk about Hunter Biden's involvement and all of that. Can you first explain what exactly is Burisma and that whole scandal for people who don't understand how does Trump's impeachment and that you know, infamous phone call play into that? And do you think that has any impact on what's going on right now? So it, it, it's very weird, right? I mean, it is it is very odd, if nothing else, that the country and the president, Vladimir Zelensky, who was obviously at the focal points, uh, who was at ground zero of the first Trump impeachment back in 2019, is now come, come in the headlines again, right? And, you know, the Burisma scandal, basically, I mean, Hunter Biden, you know, I mean, like, a, you know, uh, a very troubled man, to put it mildly, Hunter Biden was doing business with Burisma that he was clearly not qualified to do. He has no particular expertise, no background whatsoever in energy and oil and natural gas, let alone kind of Eastern European oil and natural gas in particular. And I don't remember what his exact title was with Burisma. He, I think he might have been like on the advisory board or on the board in general or something. But he, I, th- I think he was cashing out to the tune of like $50,000 a month or something yeah. egregious, egregious like that. And it ended up being basically that Burisma, which I have no doubt because of the corrupt nature of Ukraine, it has, is very close to certain kind of government governmental interests. It basically amounted that Burisma just basically wanted close access, right, to the then kind of Obama Biden White House, and that's kind of, that's kind of how it works in Ukraine. I mean, again, these post-Soviet countries in Central and Eastern Europe, and like Ukraine, Belarus, maybe more so than any and than anywhere else, honestly, maybe Moldova, I guess as well, Moldova, Belarus, Ukraine. These are these are less developed countries. They simply like do not have kind of the economies or kind of the infrastructure, or kind of like the basic kind of first world way of life, for lack of a better way of putting it, than even some of kind of the other Central European countries do. So it is very curious that the same kind of, um, you know, as recently as eight years ago in 2014, the number one most corrupt country in the world on on some rankings. It's very curious that that country is ground zero of an impeachment involving kind of the former vice president, current president's son. And now he I, I mean, I, I have not fully put the pieces together. I'm not sure anyone has, but I have had much the same thoughts that you have had, Ali. Um, it seems entirely plausible to me that there is something big out there with respect to the Biden family's involvement in Ukraine that we just don't know yet. Maybe some kind of um, enterprising young investigative journalist will be able to kind of put it all together a little better than I can and, and reveal something yeah. for us in the next six to 12 months or so. But I, I think it's worth flagging, if nothing else, because it seems entirely plausible to me, for sure. Yeah, it does just kind of seem strange. So obviously, for people who don't remember, Trump was accused of the quid pro quo by allegedly, you know, telling the Ukrainian president, hey, um, you know, we'll release these arms sales, right? Like, we'll allow these arms sales to you if you kind of investigate the corruption that went on with Joe Biden's son, Hunter, correct? And that's what he yeah, was exactly. impeached over. And then, but really, I mean, there's also the odd part that you alluded to that there could have been a quid pro quo while Joe Biden was vice president because didn't he order the firing of the prosecutor that was looking into the corruption of hunter biden's dealings with burisma absolutely yeah he absolutely did request that yes yeah so there's just there's a lot going on here and maybe that is like you said maybe it's totally separate from what is happening here and i still think we can absolutely look at this situation and say, okay, well, Russia's in the wrong period. It doesn't even matter what happened then. We can figure that out later. Absolutely. But I do think 
like you said, it's interesting to think about. And I think a lot of people have legitimate cause for concern when they're trying to put these puzzle pieces together. Yeah, no, totally. I, I mean, that's absolutely correct. I mean, look, again, Ukraine is it, it, it is a difficult country because it is it is very corrupt. Um, uh, it, it is I, I, I it is more lowercase d democratic than Russia. That's operating off of a very low baseline here. But look, at the same time, you know, I, I mean, people will accuse what I'm about to say is being kind of, quote unquote, pro Putin. I think I have demonstrably shown that I'm not. Yeah. But I think I, I think I think Russia has understandable grievances with respect to the fact that that the EU and the United States in particular has not taken uh, Ukraine's ascension to NATO off the table. There is no, there's no compelling reason why Ukraine needs to be a part of NATO. I mean, kind of all, already they're kind of Poland, Hungary, you know, are various kind of Central Eastern European allies. But why would they are Russia part of, care? Why would Russia care if Ukraine is part of NATO? I mean, they would view it as basically. I, I, I look. I mean, again, like Putin's a he, he's a KGB guy. Okay, I mean, he's a, yeah. he's an old world actor, and and the Russian people will be better when he is dead and gone. Okay, I mean, I can I, I can say that again if I need to to kind of show my <laughs> not not pro not pro Putin bona fides. But the the point is, Russia for various reasons. I mean, again, it's only like the eleventh or twelfth largest economy in the world. It's a, it's an aging, decrepit, failed, oligarchic petrostate. But it is it doesn't have it like one seventh or one eighth of the world's land mass is a gargantuan yeah. state. It has a it has a nuclear arsenal and therefore it still matters to this day whether we like it or not. And we have to be kind of prudent about how American statesmanship and diplomacy kind of affects it. And again, Ukraine, for for various reasons, not only are they not part of NATO, but they're not part of the European Union as well. And they're not part of the European Union for reasons that are as simple as what I just said, which is they do not live up to European standards when it comes to kind of, um, you know, transitional democracy, transition of power, anti-corruption measures, things of that nature. Ukraine, Ukraine is not Switzerland. I mean, Ukraine is not Austria. Ukraine is is not even again like Poland by that measure there. So uh, there's really no particular reason why Ukraine should be a part of NATO. Um, I, I thought Senator Josh Hawley was totally right to make that point a couple weeks ago where he basically just said like, let's make sure that Ukraine is not in NATO. And again, that doesn't mean that Ukraine cannot work with the West. Um, after the revolution in 2014, they signed this big agreement with the European Union called, I don't remember the exact titles, like the European Union-Ukraine Association Agreement to basically encourage kind of like trade, diplomatic relations. So there are various kind of less official means. But look, NATO in particular, obviously, because of Article 5 of NATO, entails like a very, very serious kind of a, a use of force requirement when any country whatsoever feels that it is invaded. The The bigger points here on NATO, which is kind of the point that very few are, seem to be making, is legitimately whether or not it's still necessary. I mean, kind of the NATO was an organization formed with the purpose of bankrupting and destroying the communist Soviet Union. Well, that purpose was achieved 30 years ago. So query the extent to which NATO is legitimately still needed. This is kind of what I think Trump kind of intuited was that a lot of these kind of transnational organizations, whether it's the UN, the EU, NATO, the time for kind of globalism and transnationalism is kind of on the way down and US diplomacy should really return to kind of bilateral treaties or maybe smaller multilateral treaties, kind of like kind of like the Abraham Accords in the, in the Middle East. That is what kind of U.S. diplomacy should look like. The time to kind of expand a gargantuan kind of relic of the Cold War like NATO, the time is just not right for that. I think the era for that is fundamentally over. And Putin is threatening, um, well, he's kind of threatening nuclear war. He said it's on the table. What do you make of that? 
look, he's I think Putin is a madman. OK, I mean, like, I do not think that he necessarily is, is someone who fully has his wits about him. I, you know, I, I, I disagree um, with President Trump's comment that he is um, uh, that Putin is a is a genius for this. Um, I, I, I look, I mean, I mean, to, I mean, to, to, to an extent, he's like an evil genius, I guess. But I think that he's that, that he's more crazy than genius. And I honestly, like at this very moment that we're talking with every day that this siege of Kiev goes on without kind of a capture of the city. Again, I think kind of Putin's inner circle, these multi-billionaire oligarchs are just going to get more and more and more pissed off at him because their assets are going to get more and more seized. They're not going to be able to make their banking transfers. They're not going to be able to kind of travel throughout Europe, go to their vacations. So with, with each day that this goes on, the internal pressure on Russia is going to, I think, escalate and escalate further there. But with respect to Putin in particular, um, I, I, he, again, the guy just he, he literally has said in no uncertain terms that he views the dissolution of the Soviet Union as one of the greatest tragedies of history. If he had his druthers, he would take all of the former kind of Soviet satellite states, Moldova, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Armenia, all of them, and kind of put them back into kind of greater Russia. And I think he, I think he would view that as kind of the capstone of his legacy, honestly. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So how nervous do you think the average American should be about what's going on? I mean, I know that you said, which I completely agree, that China is our main threat. But we also talked about how potentially, either indirectly or directly, this benefits China and is a threat to the West. So just for the average American that's living their life, should they continue to really pay attention to what's going on there? Or are you kind of like, you know what, we've got bigger fish to fry a lot closer to home right now. Let's keep our eyes here. So I think the latter is definitely where I come down overall. Um, look, I, I, America is not a good place right now. OK, I mean, like, uh, I, I really don't need to be the one to kind of be like the the doomsayer here or the or the Jeremiah or the, you know, the prophecy, the, the prophet of lamentation or anything. Mm -hmm. But. We're really not in a great place. I mean, like we hate each other more than ever on the domestic front, obviously. Um, you know, we, we we look terrible on the global stage. Our economy is kind of uh, is tanking. We have 40 year high inflation. We have supply chain crises. We are we are totally dependent on our arch geopolitical foe, China, when it comes to kind of basic supply chain, industrial manufactured goods, when it comes to semiconductors and even kind of militarily sensitive equipment there. Russia matters basically insofar as the fact that it still has a large nuclear arsenal. Again, that is not kind of the world's most sophisticated nuclear arsenal because a lot of it kind of goes back to the Cold War, but it is a large nuclear arsenal nonetheless. And for that very, very simple and straightforward reason, Russia will always be a factor for as long as it had kind of has that nuclear equipment. At the same time here, kind of the, the, the upshot, I think the biggest thing um, that Americans are going to have to get comfortable with is that the post-World War II, and in particular kind of post-Cold War era, like the, like the kind of 20, 25, 30, maybe 30-year 30 era, basically my lifetime, I guess, where America was the sole and exclusive superpower, where we were operating in not kind of a multipolar world, but a unipolar world, where the U.S. was the sole and unambiguous kind of great power kind of roaming the seas. Our naval ships were kind of securing free trade in the high waters in the Pacific Atlantic. You know, we were kind of the ones that were mediating all these great international treaties, the, the WTO, that kind of stuff. They, that moment, the unipolar moment is over. It is over. And we just have to kind of accept that and become comfortable with that. And that does not necessarily mean 
that America is going to lose a great war to China. I obviously pray every day that that does not happen. But we're going to have to get more comfortable with the fact that at a time where we are declining so much at home, where we have failed to kind of keep and maintain our military kind of policies, our military spending, our hard kind of naval assets, we're going to get a, we're going to have to kind of get reacquainted with the notion of great power competition on the world stage, where China at a bare minimum is already a great power. Certainly the prospect of kind of a China-Russia alliance would be a formidable great power. And we're going to have to get more comfortable with kind of sharing various spheres of influence. But the notion that America in the year 2022, with all that we are facing on the home front, can necessarily throw resources, whether it's kind of in the Middle East or Eastern Europe or Taiwan, or just throw resources all over the world to kind of secure and defend kind of our idiosyncratic conception of Western liberal democracy. The point is that era is over. Um, we just yeah. we have to focus more on getting our house together right now, and we have to pick and choose our battles abroad much more strategically. And I think that's the problem. The direction that we have to head in, which in my opinion is toward a healthy nationalism, is the exact opposite direction that our elite in this administration want to go in. Because, I mean, they're beholden to powers that I think are greater than the powers in the United States or the people of the United States. I mean, we won't get into all the world economic Forum Build Back Better Great Reset conversation right now, but there certainly is a move in that class towards globalism. I mean, that is the play. And I do think as awful as this conflict, this war, this invasion is between Russia and Ukraine, I do hope that people realize that the only way out of this mess is uh, to move back from reliance on, like you said, our greatest foreign our greatest foreign enemies and back onto reliance on ourselves self-reliance um now whether or not that's going to happen as far as the people that lead us i'm not sure but i do think that now more than ever nationalism localization really are the our only options as a people and the only way to solve any of this mess at least for the united states russia and china are going to continue what they're going to do. They're imperialistic powers that, you know, have their eyes on a particular prize. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be involved at all as Americans, but I just, I agree with you. We've got a lot of issues here, a lot of distractions, a lot of stupid, I I love the culture wars. That's what I talk about. But I spend a lot of my time talking about things that quite frankly, aren't distracting other countries, like a woman being a woman, whether or not a man should compete against women and college. So we've just got we've got a lot of issues basically here that I think weaken us. And I agree with you on that. And I think that puts us at a strategic disadvantage, even if we are still the most powerful economy in the world. Yeah, no, look, I, I agree with you, Ali, certainly. I think you and I see eye to eye on this. I, the, the one kind of area policy that I'll I allude to this briefly, but the one that I'll kind of really kind of put an emphasis on. So there, there are two. Well, there, there are more than two, but there are two things that stand out as far as kind of non-military ways to kind of make America more secure, to kind of like deter our enemies through kind of um, economic diplomacy or geostrategic diplomacy. The first that we've talked about a little bit is energy, obviously, okay? That's Keystone XL, that's Nord Stream 2. America is so incredibly blessed to be sitting on the incredible oil and natural gas reserves that it is, whether it's in Texas, Oklahoma, Wyoming, whether it's um, uh, obviously up in Alaska with the Arctic, you know, Wildlife National Refuge. So much of what we are doing here has to get back on the table as far as just drilling again. I mean, like yeah. just fracking again and, and getting our own energy house back in order. But the other kind of bucket of policy 
we have to start making things in America again. Okay, we really do. Again, back in kind of the era of globalism, back when people thought that China could be like a, a player among the nations, when free trade was kind of rampant there. We were very short-sighted insofar as we thought that kind of the Francis Fukuyama hypothesis that kind of the world was kind of converging towards democracy. We really kind of took that and we it kind of drank it like mother's milk. And what that meant was that we were kind of comfortable offshoring manufacturing, even very kind of technologically and militarily sensitive manufacturing like semiconductors and chips over to countries that we thought that we wrongly expected would head towards democracy, kind yeah. of like China. And we, we were wrong with that. I mean, our elites were just fundamentally misguided and wrong about that. So we have to do whatever we possibly can to bring some supply chains back home, especially obviously these very kind of militarily sensitive supply chains like semiconductors. So the time is now, I mean, and, and whatever options need to be on the table, whether it's strategic tariffs or subsidies or all sorts of things that maybe kind of like the most absolutist doctrinaire free marketeers might hate. I, I, I'm a free market guy myself, but those particular things have to necessarily be channeled through the means of the national interest. And the national interest now in the year 2022 means that we have to start bringing some critical supply chains back home to disentangling from China basically at any and all cost to make the American heartland and our manufacturing base more secure. That is a much, I think, easier thing to do than to necessarily try to kind of police the high seas and kind of defend liberal democracy on the beaches of Taiwan, for instance. And now we see, and maybe people will wake up to this, that manufacturing really is a national security issue. They're not two separate issues. They really are inextricably intertwined. So I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, There are apparently peace talks going or talks anyway going on right now between Ukraine and Russia. So just to end, uh, how do you think that's going to conclude today, tomorrow, for the rest of the week? So I I predict one week from now this will all be over. That's my actual prediction. I could totally be wrong about that, obviously. I mean, if Putin decides to double down and start blowing up apartment buildings and massacring civilians, then I, I will fall on my sword. I mean, he is crazier than I would have ever thought if that's what he actually kind of does next. But I do not predict that that will happen. I, I think that, that there will be some sort of ceasefire agreement here. You might see kind of like a, you know, a redrawing of the maps to an extent. Um, you know, the Donbass, certain parts of kind of eastern Ukraine. I mean, what Putin really wants, I think, I, above all, he really wants a land bridge to Crimea. You know, he, I mean, he, he took over Crimea in 2014, right, during the Obama administration. So he really wants kind of a, 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 a land mass that kind of joins some of these ethnic Russian parts of far eastern Ukraine, um, the Donbass region in particular. He wants a land mass that kind of connects that to Crimea. So I expect what, what the most likely scenario that I would guess would be some sort of ceasefire agreement whereby Putin can effectively annex those parts and we take NATO membership for Ukraine off the table. Um, I, if that is what happens and if Zelensky stays in power, if we, if, if we do not get kind of a Belarus-style Putin puppet in Kiev, um, I, I personally would take that. I, 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 think, I think that is a perfectly fine and adequate deal for the West to take. I, the question, obviously, is, is that enough for Putin? And I don't know. I mean, it's hard to guess, obviously. I mean, um, I, I, honestly, from my perspective, he just got incredibly greedy here from my perspective. He could have he, he gotten that. I mean, he, he could have easily just stopped after the Donbass region. He didn't have to go all the way to Kiev. And But again, he has these delusions of grandeur. I mean, the guy, again, is a, he's a cold warrior at heart who believes in kind of greater Russia. And I, I think his ideological fantasies have kind of you know interacted with pure greed 
to lead him to try to mount this kind of Game of Thrones style invasion of Kiev. So we'll see what happens. But I guess I predict uh, this is a tough prediction, but I, probably, I do predict that he will not start massacring civilians, which means that we will probably get a ceasefire roughly along the lines of what I just described. Wow. Well, we'll see. We'll see. There's obviously a lot that could unfold. There were a lot of predictions that, you know, all of us made a week ago about what we thought was going to happen. And as you said, I think he's kind of proven himself to be a madman, a little bit of an unpredictable person. So we'll see. Obviously, praying for peace. We all do. It really doesn't matter the sins of either country when it's civilians, when it's innocent people that are dying. It's just a lose-lose situation. So um, thank you. Thank you for your insight. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Anytime, Allie. Have a great day. Thank you. Okay, last sponsor for the day before we get into that encouragement that I offered you guys, and that is Annie's Kit Club. So in a world of propaganda and misinformation and just thoughtlessness, we want our kids to be thoughtful, to be discerning, to be able to critically think and to be problem solvers. And Annie's Kit Clubs, uh, specifically Annie's Genius Box, is an excellent way to encourage that in your kids. So you can make sure that you're cultivating your kids' curiosity while providing fun activities that are as entertaining as they are educational. Each month, your young scientists will get a new box, bursting with three hands-on activities to explore an exciting STEM theme like geology, chemistry, aerodynamics, and more. It's perfect for all kids ages 7 to 12. Genius Box can empower your kids' imagination and critical thinking skills. They'll get a top-secret mission envelope in every box that will walk them through multiple amazing projects each month. Your kids can design a hovercraft or examine fossils. Lots of fun stuff. Go to annieskitclubs.com slash Allie. Save 50% on your first box. That's annieskitclubs.com slash Allie. annieskitclubs.com slash Allie. All right, guys, I told you that I would leave you on an encouraging note. And so I am going to do that. Now I could spend a whole hour doing this and maybe we will because a lot of you guys have been asking me for just an exclusively theological episode. And so I'm going to do that this week. Maybe I'll do a most misused if you're interested in that, or I just will take a break from the news. But it's important for me to cover everything that's going on because, I mean, these are real people that are being affected. And of course, we care about people. They're um, if you guys follow uh, Girl Defined, specifically um, Bethany of Girl Defined, she's been sharing that one of her sisters, Elisa, is in Ukraine with her Ukrainian husband. We don't have a lot of details about where they are now, but they've been driving for days um, trying to find uh, safety, a place of refuge, and I think cross into another country. Here's the real kicker, not just that these are people that we have, you know, just a little, just a few degrees of separation from. Um, and obviously, Elisa is American, but obvious it, but also she is 39 weeks pregnant at this point. So she could literally give birth at any time. And from Instagram and the updates we've been receiving there, she hasn't gotten a lot of sleep. Obviously, this is a very stressful situation. I mean, and she's a first-time mom. So just imagine what she's going through right now. It's also been an incredible testimony watching their faith and seeing just kind of the peace and the joy and the steadfastness that she has demonstrated on social media as she's been trying to update people and also the kindness of Christians that she 
um, that she has experienced in Ukraine and elsewhere, the connections that she has with the global church. It's really just been amazing to watch. It shows what the body of Christ really is supposed to be. That's what we do as Christians. We run into trouble. We run into stress. We run into danger. Uh, for the sake of vulnerable people, especially for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ, because that's what God did for us through Christ. He ran into pain. He ran into death. He ran into our trouble. He didn't have to, but he did because of his love for us. And we are called to love other people and to love our fellow Christians as Christ loved the church um, and as Christ loves us. And obviously that means self-sacrifice. And we've seen that through Elisa's story and her husband's story. So pray for them, please. Um, pray for their safety, pray for their protection, pray for a smooth, miraculously just smooth and easy birth. Pray for a healthy baby girl. Just pray that the Lord would be with them and not just with them, but everyone who is suffering right now in Ukraine. And there's a lot of suffering in the world. So certainly we can pray not only for the people in Ukraine, but everyone who is suffering from violence and oppression and tyranny and persecution and all of that. But look, we don't have the capacity, the ability to know everything that's going on in the world, to be able to feel everyone's pain as empathetic and compassionate as we might be, as we want to be. We are finite human beings and we simply cannot carry the weight of the world. We were not made to carry the weight of the world. There are goods and there are bads to social media and our 24-hour news cycle. We have access to other people's suffering, so we can pray for them. We can financially support them. We can help them with connections, whatever is needed for them. And that's wonderful. That also helps us connect to the global church. It helps us see how blessed we are here in the United States and be grateful for that and to use the means that we have to help other people. So all of that um, is a great benefit to social media and the access that we have to images of suffering around the world. One detriment to that is that we feel that we have to know everything and care about everything and everyone all at once. And we even feel and hear and see this pressure that if we don't say the right thing, do the right thing, say enough, show enough emotion and enough care about every single issue going on in the world, that it's because we're heartless, that it's because we're on the wrong side of history or we are pro the enemy or whatever it is. And that's not fair either. The fact of the matter is, I mean, as the title of my book says, is that we are not enough. Like we're not enough to carry the weight of the world. And God actually made us insufficient in that way. But we do have a large capacity. It's simply not infinite. But the large capacity to care and to help that we have, we have to simply pour out how God is calling us to pour out. So while we can acknowledge the suffering that's happening around the world, and I think that we all have enough capacity to pray for those people, the fact of the matter is, is that God right now is calling you um, to the next right thing. He's calling you to where you are. Now, maybe God is calling you to travel abroad, to be a missionary. Maybe God is calling you to some big step, to take some huge leap of faith that you didn't think was possible, to start some organization, to give away everything that you have, to, like I said, travel across the world. Maybe that's true. Or maybe he is calling you to simply do the next simple thing that to the world looks really basic, looks really small, looks really insignificant or unsubstantial, um, but to God actually matters. I'm talking about 
changing a diaper. I'm talking about cleaning dishes. I'm talking about having a conversation with a friend. I'm talking about sharing the gospel with someone that you know. I'm talking about praying or reading your Bible or doing a really good job in whatever work project that you have or studying in an excellent way for the test that you have tomorrow. You have tasks that are right in front of you that are not arbitrary. They're not purposeless. God did not place you where he did accidentally. You are not in the country or city that you're in at the time in, at the time that you are in it for accidental or um or meaningless reasons. God purposely put put you on the tiny speck of eternity on which he placed you and the tiny plot of earth on which he placed you in order to make the spheres that you occupy better for his glory and the good of other people. That's what you're called to do. Sometimes we are called to do that through big leaps of faith and we pray for wisdom and discernment and direction. But even if that's the case, even if God is calling you to something that seems really big or really public or uh, really scary, really risky, still Your next responsibility is simply to do the next small thing, the next right thing in faith with excellence and for the glory of God. And so, yes, we care about the suffering that's going on in the world. We do what we can to help the people that God has placed on our hearts. Um, But our task is not to simply be anxious, to not be scrolling through social media every five seconds and to be weighed down by the weight of the world constantly. That can actually lead to disobedience. That can actually be a trap set by Satan to take us out of our present moment, to steal our gratitude, to steal the joy and the contentment to which Christians are incontrovertibly and arguably called. Um, and to make us anxious and worried. And we are specifically called so many times throughout scripture by Jesus himself, like in Matthew 10, not to be worried and not to be anxious and not to fear, but in everything with thanksgiving, as Philippians 4 tells us, um, to pray to God, to give him our burdens, to give him our cares, and to allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts, the peace that passes understanding. I think I mixed a few scriptures there, but we are called to that biblically. So we care, but we don't allow our care to turn into burdening anxiety. We have to do the next right thing that's in front of us. And we can't allow what's going on in the world to steal our joy because we remember that God is completely sovereign over all of it. Nothing throws him off. Nothing scares him. Nothing gets him up off his throne to see what's going on. He's not surprised or taken aback or thrown off or shocked by anything that's going on. He is completely and totally in control. Yes, things violate his moral will every day and that people sin and disobey him and things displease him and anger him, but nothing can violate his grand sovereign will. He works all things together for the good of those who love him. That's what Romans 8.28 tells us. As R.C. Sproul says, there's not a maverick molecule in all of the universe. Nothing, nothing can surpass or circumvent God's sovereign will. Yes, he even uses evil, even though he would never author evil or tempt people to evil, but he will use the evil of dictators to bring himself glory and he will declare victory once and for all. That's our hope. That's why we can do the next right thing in faith with excellence and enjoy. That's why. Because we know that Christ will claim ultimate victory and because God is totally in control and not even a hair can fall from our heads apart from the Father's will. 
Not even a sparrow falls from the sky. A sparrow that's sold for a penny can fall from the sky apart from the Father's will. So you think that anything's going to happen to you apart from God's will, who he loves so much more than a sparrow or the lilies of the field? Of course not. So we trust him, knowing that absolutely nothing can happen to us that God does not specifically will, and we do the next right thing that he is calling us to. Let me read you a couple passages of scripture just to bring this home. Daniel 2, 20 through 22. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. There is no secret to God. And then let me read you part of my favorite psalm, and that is Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We did a most misused on that once. Uh, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noon day. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. There is no dictator. There is no evil policy. There is no one at the World Economic Forum. There is no great reset. That is a match for God and his strength and his plans. There's just not. Now, I'm going to finish with a quote from C.S. Lewis um, about the nuclear age, the atomic bomb. And I've posted this uh, I've posted this quote several times because I I love it so much because I think it speaks to really every age that we have. And it's just a great reminder that while we look at this and we say, well, it's the end times, it's got to be the end times, nothing has ever been this bad. Maybe it is the end times, but things have been this bad in different ways. So let me read you this and then we'll finally be done with this mega long episode. All right. He says, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live then in in an atomic age? Well, I am tempted to reply. Why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented, and quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. This is the first point to be made, and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it finds us, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. Even a microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. So let that be our mentality. Christians will be known by their love, but we are also known by our courage. So be courageous in an age of chaos and confusion and absolute cowardice. That's our call for today. All right, we'll be back here tomorrow. See you guys then. 